You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. Riz. I'm the pastor here at Reality Honolulu. just want to say aloha, welcome. So glad to worship with you. Um, for those of you guys that are always here, so good to see you. And for those new faces just visiting, welcome. We love to worship and get into God's word and uh, fellowship with you today. Um, if you've been with us, you know that uh, we continue in the book of Exodus today. Uh, the story, this wonderful, incredible, redemptive story in the book of Exodus and if you've missed out on the last several months, um, we have all the sermons up either on the website or you can go to, you know, the podcast on iTunes, Reality Honolulu, and just kind of go back and, um, and catch up on that. But today, we're tackling almost three whole chapters. And so why don't, you, why don't you turn there, Exodus chapter 21, you can turn there right now. And what we'll see today is that we're getting into like the nitty gritty of the law of God that he's setting forth to the children of Israel while they're camped at the the feet of Mount Sinai. And uh, only a few months after they were rescued from the bondage of slavery. And in these longer sections of scripture, we have different people from the church family uh, read the text for today. And in advance, I want to prepare you for uh, your attention span is going to get stretched. Might be like 10 minutes or so of reading. And I know like that shouldn't be long, but in our day and age, like guys, you got to like, you can do it. You can prove the year 2019 wrong here by just reading an like actual page of something for, for about 10 minutes. Um, so today, I'd like to I invite up a dear brother, friend, and servant of the Lord to read our text today. Let's welcome up Zan Halford. Come on up, buddy. I'm so stoked, guys. <laughs> so, yeah, let's just do this well. Thanks, Mario. These are the laws you are to set before them, says Moses. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years. But in the seventh year, he shall go free without paying anything. If he comes alone, he is to go free alone. But if he has a wife when he comes, she is to go with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the woman and her children shall belong to her master, and only the man shall go free. But if the servant declares, I love my master and my wife and children, and I do not want to go free, then his master must take him before the judges. He shall take him to the door or the doorpost, and pierce his ear with an owl. Then he will be his servant for life. If a man sells his daughter as a servant, she is not to go free as the male servants do. If she does not please the master who has selected him for herself, he must let her go to be redeemed. He has no right to sell her to foreigners because, she has, or, I'm sorry, because he has broken faith with her. If he selects her for his son, he must grant her the rights of a daughter. And if he marries another woman, he must not deprive this first one of her food and clothing and marital rights. 
if he does not provide her with these things, or these three things, she is to go three, or free without any payment of money. Anyone who strikes a person with a fatal blow is to be put to death. However, if it is not done intentionally, but God lets this happen, they are to flee to a place I will designate. Not me, but, you know. But if anyone schemes and kills someone deliberately, that person is to be taken from my altar and put to death. Anyone who attacks their father or mother is to be put to death. Anyone who kidnaps someone is to be put to death, whether the victim has been sold or is still in the kidnapper's possession. Anyone who curses their father or their mother curses is to be put to death. If, the, if people quarrel and one hits another with a stone or with their fist, and the victim does not die but is confined to bed, the one who struck the blow will not be held liable if the other can get up and walk around outside with his staff. However, the guilty party must pay the injured person for any loss of time and see that the victim is completely healed. Anyone who beats their male or female slave servant with a rod must be punished if the slave dies as a direct result, but they are not to be punished if the slave recovers after a day or two, since the slave is their property. If people are fighting and, they, and hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but there is no serious injury, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. But if there is a serious injury, you are to take life for a life, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, hand for a hand, foot for a foot, burn for a burn, wound for a wound, bruise for a bruise. An owner who hits a male or female slave in the eye and destroys it must let the slave go free to compensate for the eye. And an owner who knocks out the tooth of a male or female slave must let the servant go free to compensate for the tooth. But, sorry, now, if a bull gores a man or woman to death, the bull is to be stoned to death and its meat must not be eaten. But the owner of the bull will not be held <coughs> responsible. If, however, the bull has, where am I? The bull has had the habit of goring, and the owner has been warned, but has not kept it penned up, and it kills a man or a woman, the bull is to be stoned, and its owner is also to be put to death. However, if payment is demanded, the owner must redeem his life by the payment of whatever is demanded. The law also applies if the bull gores a son or a daughter. If the bull gores a male or female slave, the owner must pay 30 shekels of silver to the master of the slave, and the bull is to be stoned to death. If anyone uncovers a pit or digs one and falls to cover, fails to cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner, the one who opened the pit, must pay the owner for the loss and take the dead animal in exchange. If anyone's bull injures someone else's and bull and it dies, the two parties are to sell the live one and divide both money and the dead animal equally. However, if it was going, oh, if it was known that the bull had been a habit of goring, yet the owner did not keep it penned up, the owner must pay animal for animal and take the dead animal in exchange. Chapter 22. <laughs> Protection of properties. 
Whoever steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it must pay back five heads of cattle for the ox and four for the sheep. If a thief is caught breaking in at night and is struck a fatal blow, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. But if it happens after the sun, sunrise and the, defend, the defender is guilty of bloodshed, anyone who steals must certainly make restitution. But if they have nothing, they must be sold to pay for their theft. If the stolen animal is found alive in their possession, whether ox or donkey or sheep, they must pay back double. If an animal grazes their livestock in a field or vineyard and lets them stray and they graze in someone else's field, the offender must make restitution from the best of their own field or vineyard. If a fire breaks out and spreads into thorn bushes so that it burns shocks of grain or standing grain or the whole field, the one who started the fire must make restitution. If anyone gives a neighbor silver or goods from safekeep for safekeeping and they are stolen from the neighbor's house, the thief, if caught, must pay back double. But if the thief is not found, the owner of the house must appear before the judges, and they must determine whether the owner of the house has laid hands on the other person's property. In all cases of illegal possession, an ox, a donkey, a sheep, a garment, or any other lost property about which someone says, this is mine, both parties are to bring their cases before the judges. The one whom the judges declare guilty must pay back double to the other. If anyone gives a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any animal to their neighbor for safekeeping and it dies or is injured or is taken away while no one is looking, <laughs> the issue between them will be settled by the taking of an oath before the Lord and that the neighbor did not lay hands on the other person's property. The owner is to accept this and no restitution is required. But if the animal was stolen from the neighbor, restitution must be made to the owner. If it was torn to pieces by a wild animal, the neighbor shall bring in the remains as evidence and shall not be required to pay for the torn animal. If anyone borrows an animal from their neighbor and it is injured or dies, while the owner is not present, they must make restitution. But if the owner um, is with the animal... The borrower will not have to pay. If the animal was hired and the money, well, the money paid for the hire covers the loss. Social things. If a man seduces a virgin who is not pledged to be married and sleeps with her, he must pay the bride price and she shall be his wife. If her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he must still pay the bride price for virgins. Do not allow a sorceress to live. If anyone who has sexual relations with an animal is to be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord must be destroyed. Do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused, and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows, and your children fatherless. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do 
Do not treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset, because that cloak is the only covering that your neighbor has. Whatever else can they sleep in? When they cry out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. Do not blaspheme God or curse the ruler of your people. Do not hold back offerings from your granaries or your vats. You must give me the firstborn of your sons. Do the same with your cattle and your sheep. Let them stay with their mothers for seven days, but give them to me on the eighth day. You are to be my holy people. So do not eat the meat of an animal torn by wild beasts. Throw it to the dogs. We're almost there. <laughs> do not spread false reports. Do not help a guilty person by being a malicious witness. Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. When you give testimony in a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd and do not show favoritism to a poor person in the lawsuit. If you come across your enemy's ox or your donkey wandering off, be sure to return it. Um, if you see the donkey of someone else or someone who hates you fallen down under its load, do not leave it there for be sure to help them with it. Do not deny justice to your poor people in their lawsuits. Have nothing to do with false charge, and do not put an innocent or honest person to death, for I will not acquit the guilty. Do not accept a bribe, for bribe blinds those who see it and twist the words in the of the innocent. Do not oppress a foreigner, for, your, for you yourselves know how it feels to be foreigners, because you were foreigners in Egypt. For six years, you are to sow your fields and harvest crops, but during the seventh year, let the land un lie unplowed and unused. Then the poor among your people may get good food from it, and the wild animals may eat what is left. Do the same with your vineyards and your olive grove. Six days do your work, but on the seventh day do not work, so that your ox and your donkey may rest, and that so the slave born in your household and the foreigner living among you may be refreshed. Be careful to do everything that I have said to you. Do not invoke the names of other gods. Do not let them be heard on your lips. Three times a year you are to celebrate a festival to me. Celebrate the festival of the unleavened bread. For seven days eat bread made without yeast as I have commanded you. Do this at the appointed time in the month of Aviv, for in that month you came out of Egypt. No one is to appear before me empty-handed. Celebrate the festival of the harvest with the first fruits of the crops that you sow in your field. Celebrate the festival of ingathering, and at the end of the year, when you gather in your crops from the field, Three times a year, all the men are to appear before the sovereign Lord and do not offer the blood of a sacrifice to me along with anything containing yeast. The fat of my festival offerings must not be kept until morning. Bring the best of the first fruits for your <coughs> soil to the house of the Lord your God. Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. That is the word of the Lord. Come on. 
Good job, Zan. There was Thanks, some weird stuff there, so good job. Ah, uh, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for this time. And God, we give it to you and ask that your will would be done. God, we ask that in these pages of scripture, in, in the law, in these commandments, God, would you give us understanding into your heart behind giving these, the why, the, the what, and, and how it applies to us here now. So God, we just give you this time. We ask that you would have your way with us. God, you are God, and we want to hear from you now. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, well, I'm really thankful to have just celebrated a few weeks ago my 11-year anniversary with my wonderful wife. Um, she's, amen, amen. She's the one that uh, leads worship most of the time on the keyboard here. She's amazing. Uh, but one of the most significant things, like usually, right, your anniversary, you think back to your wedding day. Um, you're remembering the day that you got married, right? And so on, one of the most significant moments, looking back at your wedding day, uh, well, maybe it's different for other people, but a lot of times, it's the vows that you say to the other person. It's the vows that you say to one another. And the vows, what they are, right, is, is each of you are declaring what you promise to do in that marriage covenant. Right? You're, you're promising to the other person inside of this covenant of marriage what I promise to do. Right? And we know the basics, the big ones, right? I'll forsake all others for richer and poorer till death do us part. There's more. But if you're going to take away some big ones, it's the vows. The big ones are I'll forsake all other. I'll love you forever in sickness and health for richer or poorer. But obviously... There's a million and one more details and ways these are played out over your marriage. Like vows are the core, like it's the foundation, it's the beginning, like it's the statement, it's the intention of what you're going to do daily like for years to come, right? And in the same way, what we've seen over in our text the last few weeks is that God is actually reestablishing his covenant relationship with his people, Israel. And the Ten Commandments that we studied last week are like the wedding vows. These are the terms of the covenant, right? These are, this is the foundation, the most important, like the basis for this whole covenant relationship. Even in the language is don't have any other gods before me. That's marriage language. That's vow language. Forsake all others. And so the law, which we just read in part, we're seeing today, this is like the nuts and bolts, the nitty-gritty like of how the Ten Commandments play out in the world and how to love God and interact with others. What we read today isn't the entirety of the law. The law actually consists of 613 laws, right? The Ten Commandments make up ten of those. Uh, and we see starting here in Exodus 20 and scattered throughout the next few books of the Torah, the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible, up until they enter the promised land, we see the law laid out. And a lot of times it's God gives a law, gives some commandments, gives some instruction of how the people are to live inside this covenant. 
and they fail miserably at it, and they disobey, and then God gives more laws, and then they disobey, and God gives more laws. And there's 613 of these different things, which we saw a picture of. I mean, I mean, it even comes down to, like, what to do with your friend's tunic. Like, if he's only got one jacket, and you borrow it, you should give it back, because then he doesn't have something to sleep in. Like, that's one of 613 of these laws that God is giving to Israel. And so inside this covenant relationship, as the people of God, their lives are to be lived differently because they're now following, worshiping, and obeying Yahweh. Only, solely, no other gods, there's no other systems, there's no other, there's no other ways to live where God's people, we're in a covenant relationship, and so that actually changes the way we live. What do we do now? We follow, we obey, we worship the creator God, the God of our ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right, if we look back, right, Jacob, another name, Israel, he had 12 sons. Those 12 sons would become the 12 tribes of Israel. They're gathered at the feet of Mount Sinai right now. So Israel's family has now become a big nation. Two and a half million Israelites, offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This nation is chosen by God to be the main vehicle of blessing and salvation to the world. So they're all gathered. The, 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 uh, the covenant is being reestablished. The terms of the covenant are being laid out. And the purpose of the law, of all these, maybe to us, these weird, odd, maybe irrelevant, we're going to get to that in a second, but these laws that are given are to be instructions, commands, and ways to live. This is Israel's constitution. This is their code of morality and ethics to live by. And again, lots may be odd or weird, but in their culture and in their context, it was very relevant and very applicable. And even in these few chapters, right, the, the subjects include theft and murder and justice and how to treat widows and how to deal with sex and the Sabbath, and the list goes on. Even in our, our, few, our few chapters here. There's a lot of different areas of life that God is uh, uh, bringing up and dealing with and, and giving some instruction to. But more than that, like this law, these laws were given so that the people of God could flourish in God's intended design. This, this, this links back to the creation narrative in the beginning of Genesis. right? God made man and women and made all of creation. And what did he instruct them to do? Be fruitful and multiply. Enjoy my creation. You're not supposed to be enslaved. You weren't supposed to be in bondage. You weren't supposed to be devalued as human beings. Remember, that's what they just came out of. Systematic, social, centuries-long slavery. So they weren't flourishing. Humanity's not flourishing. But these laws that God is giving them are reminding them that, that as humanity... My, God's intended design is for human flourishing. Again, they had come out of a very oppressive, evil, and wicked environment, which undoubtedly had shaped them. 
How could it not? It's all you knew. So God, through these laws, is actually showing and revealing his heart and his nature and his character for them and others through these laws. Right, because we can think of like laws as just bad and restrictive and oppressive, even. But God is actually saying, no, no, no. This is actually going to be. You're going to live free now. You're going to be. You live as I designed. You're actually going to have the fullness of joy. It's actually going to work the best if you live inside of these different laws. And we have to understand, like everything else that God has given. The law is an expression of his love, a manifestation of his mercy, and a provision of his grace. And so the laws get laid out. The Ten Commandments get laid out. Not not all of them, but but a lot of them, right, in these chapters 19, 20, 21, 22, 23. And what is, well, we're going to get to it next week, so maybe you haven't read ahead, but what is the initial response to Israel to the terms of, of the covenant that God lays out. Well, next week, Exodus 24, 7, they say, we'll do everything you have said. In other words, if it was a marriage ceremony, this would be, I do. Laid out all the terms of the covenant. Will you love me? Will you do these things? Will you? I do. I commit. I'm in. I'm, gonna, I'm in. So Israel's response To this, to all of this, is God, we will do everything that you said. Well, what's the the actual story of what happens with Israel, though? They are all talk. The rest of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, really the story of the first five books of the whole Bible. If you were to nail it down, what what is it? What, What is it? What are the first five books of the Bible detail? They detail and contrast God's faithfulness and humanity's unfaithfulness. God lays everything out. It's really clear, and it's really good. And humanity messes it up over and over and over and over. And God is completely faithful over and over and over and over. So so the people of God here get these laws. We're in God. Signed on the dotted line. They fail miserably at obeying these things. Super quick to depart, forget, choose to not follow. They make other gods, they worship in, and they make a mess of each other. Just wait till the golden calf, just in a few chapters. They do literally the opposite of what God just told them, and they just said, God, we're not going to do it, and they just do it. Like, really quick. But what's important to know is that the law, rather than the law being like this legalistic way to like earn right standing or salvation with God, what the law actually did was actually illuminate and expose humanity's inability to do any of it. And what it did was it pointed toward a need for a savior. So instead of the law being like, you got to follow everything to have right standing with God and be saved, what the law actually did was expose humanity's inability to to even do it. Book of Romans comments on this, Romans 3.20. says, therefore, no no one will be be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, 
Through the law, we become conscious of our own sin. This is what Paul is telling the Romans. Like, you're not, like obeying the law doesn't, doesn't mean you're in right standing with God. Do you understand that you're actually like failing miserably to obey it? What the law does is actually just make you conscious of your inability to be holy as God is holy and righteous as he's righteous. There's a lacking. There's, there's a need there. There's an inability to, 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 to be what God wants them to be. And a spoiler alert is the law is pointing to Jesus, right? All the scriptures bear witness to Christ. Moses wrote about Christ. What did Jesus say? John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verses 39 and 46, speaking to the crowds. You, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. So Jesus is referring back to the Torah now, the first five books, referring back to Exodus. If you believe Moses, you believe me, for he wrote of me. But what happens to, and has to develop in the children of Israel, is this whole system of actually really intricate sacrifices to atone for them disobeying the law. Like for them sinning, for them not doing what God said. Like Leviticus has seven chapters dealing with this. For those of you that have ever tried to read the Bible, like in a year, when you get to like the seven chapters in Leviticus, it's for like half of us bow out. Because we're just like, why all this blood? What is happening? Why are these animals? Why is everybody killing everything? This is so strange. This is so weird. Yeah, 100%. But again, sin and disobedience was and is a big deal. It's a life and death thing. And when it came to being holy and righteous in God's presence, that only a life or an animal or the blood of an animal, right? The life is in the blood had to be taken in place of a person's sin in order to atone for that sin. Atone, we don't really use that word, atonement. But atone means like to pay for or, or to cover up. And so when you sinned, when you rebelled, when you disobeyed God, when you worshiped other gods and not him, you had to atone, you had to sacrifice a living animal in your stead. A modern-day example for, like, atonement or, or to cover up would be um, you and a friend are at dinner, and the check comes, and you say, oh, my gosh, I forgot my wallet. And your friend's like, no problem. I got you covered. I'll cover you. I'm going to pay your debt. You, you ate the food. You ate the sushi. But, but I forgot my wallet, but I'm going to cover you. We, we say that. I'm going to cover you. I got you covered. This is the idea of atonement here and sacrifice in the Old Testament when it comes to, to paying for your sin that you, that you committed. Right? The sacrificial system would like continue and continue because the people of God would sin and they would sin. All of this was a band-aid. And as much as they tried to do good and follow the law, their unchanged, unredeemed hearts fell miserably short. 
And this would constantly remind Israel of the wickedness of their inner heart condition. Even in like Moses' final speech, he told Israel, I, I know you're not going to be able to do this. Like, I, I, I know you're going to like turn away. And it's not going to work because your hearts are hard. And the only way it's going to work is that you need a new transformed heart in order to follow God's commands. This is what Moses said. This is like his final words before he dies. Like, you're not going to do it. You're going to fail. Sorry, it's a hard issue. You don't have a new heart. I did the best I could. I'm out. That's what Moses kind of said. And after the Torah, right, there's a section of 15 books called the Prophets, the Law and the Prophets. And what the Prophets do is they just reflect back on this story. That's most of what they do. And even Ezekiel prophesied that if Israel... If humanity was ever going to be able to do this, that God would have to transform their hard hearts into soft hearts. Right? Ezekiel 36, 26. I will give them one heart and a new spirit, and I will put within them. I will remove their heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Jeremiah also spoke about this. What? When that happens, obedience wouldn't feel like a duty, but rather they would be doing it out of the depth of, of their hearts. Jeremiah 24, 7 says, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and then they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole hearts. Ezekiel, Jeremiah spoke about the only way that obedience is actually going to come is with a new heart. Isaiah spoke of a future leader who would one day come that would give us a new heart in order that we could obey God. All of the Old Testament is pointing to what Christ would be and do in the new covenant. Israel, the people of God, were left disobeying, unable to. It was a heart issue. It was a heart condition. All the prophets said this. Moses said this. We need new hearts. And it's not just Israel. We too, when trying to live up to God's standards on our own strength, what do we do? Fail miserably. 100% of the time. Paul also in Romans, Romans 3.23, he says, everyone has sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. So this is where it's relevant. We're in the same boat as Israel. God's holy. He's wonderful. He's perfect. He's righteous. If we have a problem, we're not. We're not obtaining to his standards. There's sin and it can't be in his presence. Like, how is this relationship going to work? We've broken all the terms of the covenant. But what did Jesus do? Okay, so Jesus comes on the scene, God in the flesh. What does he do? He lives a perfect life, perfectly obeying all of God's laws and all of God's standards. He never breaks one. He's sinless. First person ever doesn't break the law, follows the law, obeys God, does not sin. So what Jesus did 
was he came to fulfill all that was written in the law and the prophets. He accomplished what the law required. That's why it was like such a big deal that in Matthew 5, Jesus would say, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I can do away. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota nor a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So the law, all 613, all of God's standards, his holiness, his righteousness, the law Christ kept perfectly. And it's even crazier, and all its penalties against God's sinful people were poured out upon Christ. He actually was the final atonement. Remember that word? He was the final atonement and sacrifice for all our sins and our, all our rebellion. He took the penalty of it. He died as the sacrificial lamb for the sins of all humanity. He paid what we should have paid. He paid our debt. He, he covered up. He took away the penalty of sin that who, who accrued? We did. See, see, we could not and cannot keep God's law. Israel tried. Humanity's tried. We can't do it. But there is one who lived the life we could not live, and then he died the death we should have died. Like, that's the gospel. Jesus obeyed for us and died in the place of lawbreakers, in our place. And so the law is not the path to righteousness. Christ is. Right? The ultimate goal of the law is that we would look to Christ, not law-keeping, for our righteousness. This is the point. So, uh, a good question would be for us, is the law for us today? So what do you do with that? What do you do with all those weird things? Well, this is highly debated and can swing both sides. Right? The law, this is the two sides. The law should be thrown out. It's not for today. Jesus fulfilled it. Doesn't apply to us. Irrelevant. Throw it out. Or, other side is, absolutely. We should obey it to the T in each of our current contexts and don't depart. I think there is a more correct and balanced approach. Here's what I'm going to propose. That the law in general... What the law does is it communicates God's heart and character. That's what it does. So there are parts that we should definitely still adhere to. Like the New Testament does a great job of unpacking and explaining what those are. Jesus himself even does that. But other things in the law were culturally and specific to that time and place and really not for us to obey anymore. That's, that's what I would think. If you want to break it down, the law which God gives Israel falls into three classes. You may have heard this before. The moral, the ceremonial, and the civil. Right? The moral, um, some of those would be like the Ten Commandments. Like, don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Like, don't do those still. Those are still, those are still in, in effect. Ceremonial, though, much 
of what was done in ceremony was again pointing to Christ. Much of the civil, uh, a lot of it's specific, unless you have like goats or donkeys or ox, maybe some of it applies. But again, we, we live right with our, with our own laws. We're supposed to obey the government. And so some, some of what it's saying here in a civil dispute may not you know, be real. Like if someone breaks in, you're not supposed to like take it into your own hands and be the judge and the jury executioner. But the law kind of says you should do that. Right? So, so there's like, don't murder. Still don't do that. But if it happens, you, you got to go like figure that out in the justice system. You can't just go like do your own thing like the law would say. So in a nutshell, this is what I would say. God's character is revealed in his law. And this makes the laws relevant. We should seek to learn what the laws mean and then make responsible, Christ-centered, new covenant application. Because there's nuances to them. And there's stuff that still applies, but then there's other stuff that doesn't. Make sense? But what it comes down to, and what I think is important for us to take away today, is what Israel needed was a changed heart. And that is what precisely God does through Christ in us. He saves us. He redeems us. He forgives our sin. He makes us born again. We're new creations. We have a new heart. And not only that, he actually gives us himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Israel didn't have the Holy Spirit, right, in them as a temple to live out these things. But we, we now do, right? In the new covenant, because of Christ's finished work upon the cross, now we, are more full, we can more fully live as God's people, being continually transformed into his image, right? Not on our own ability, but on his power. Why? Because we've been given a new heart and the Holy Spirit. Literally, Moses says, you're not going to be able to do it unless there's a changed heart that comes, right? Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, yeah, Isaiah, I thought I said that maybe wrong. They're all pointing to Christ. They're all pointing to the cross. That's why the Bible, that's why reading the Old Testament and the laws are important and are relevant because it's speaking of one who would come, our Jesus, that would die in our place, perfectly fulfilling the law, paying our penalty, paying our check, so to speak, and saying, you're a new creation, now live for me. And and don't just just live for me because you think you're going to be in right standing to God. I did that on the cross. You are in right standing, and so now obey me because you love me. Don't obey me because you have to or you think you're earning something or you think you just got to be a better person. I did all that. I was perfect. I died in your place. I paid your penalty. Now live for me because you love me and you're changed. So for us, it becomes really relevant. So what I would would want us to to do and pray and, and maybe walk in is this week. What does that look like for us? To live out God's word and God's character in your context now that you have a new heart and the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Again, if, if you feel like that's not you, you're not a believer, you haven't known the Lord, you haven't been saved, you haven't been born again, well, that's the first place to start. We got we to gotta go there first. But for those of us in here that we feel like, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian, yep, yep, that's me. So then, what does that look like? What does it look like for us to love God and love other people with a new heart and with the power of the Holy Spirit? Because there's really nothing off limits now. Because you're right, our lives are no longer our own. They're hidden with Christ. We've got the power of the Holy Spirit. Like it's not us to, up to us to try to like muster a better life. It's not. We le- learn from Israel. You're not supposed to, and we can't on our own strength. So for me, what does that look like for me personally? That means going into Monday, going, waking up, and saying, God, I can't do this without you. I want to live for you. Like, I want to love, I want to, like, whoever, I, like, the email I send or the person I come to contact in, I want to love them the way you'd love them, but I can't do this on my own strength. I'll fail miserably. I just learned about that. But by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you continue to change my heart and make me more like you? Because how does outward change come? It's because from inward change. Like, all that you do, your words and your actions and your thoughts and whether you're grumpy or not, whether you have road rage or not, no, it's real. So, is it comes from a changed heart. It comes from a heart condition. So we're going to worship as we always do. We're going to respond to God's word. And if you're anything like me, I would worship the Lord for who he is and what he's done, but I would come to the feet of Jesus and say, God, I can't do this without you. There's no way that I can, I can love my coworker or my boss or even my neighbor. I can't get through this week without you. That's my exhortation to us. Let's be desperate for God to change us and make us more like him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. And thank you for the way in which you've interacted with humanity. And that we have it. And and we can look back to the way you've been faithful despite humanity's unfaithfulness. And God, as a redeemed people today, God, we want to just stay in that place of thankfulness and worship. We want to remember the depths of which you saved us out of. And God, we want to, would you help us to like continue to be freed of the sin, of the junk, of the stuff that maybe we're holding on to, that's entangling us, that's messing with us becoming more like you. And so God, would you, would you, would you deal with our hearts today? This transformed new heart that you've given us through your work upon the cross and, and, and us becoming a new creation, God, we want to lay that heart, the heart that you've given us and you're forming at your feet and say, God, let it be in love with you, with all our being. We want our, our hearts to be surrendered to you and we ask that everything that comes from us would be glorifying to you, Father. Pray these things in, in Jesus' name, amen.